Good morning, church. Yeah, there we go. Hey, disclaimer. We're going to read the Bible today. Like a lot of it. A lot of the Old Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament is not irrelevant and it is specifically a foreshadowing of the birth of Christ, the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. And all of that is so much more exciting to read when we understand and realize that the Hebrew Scriptures point out the fulfillment of our sin problem, which isn't that we would try harder or attempt to be gooder. I know that's not a real word. But that everything is found and accomplished in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. That's your disclaimer today. So I want you guys to get ready. Like uh, Chris had everyone pull out the prayer cards. If you have your Bible on your device or in paper form or one of our Bibles, would you lift it up? Come on, lift it up. Yeah! All right, so get your thumbs ready because we're going to flip through a bunch of passages today. And the hope is that we would highlight, that we would circle, that we would underline, but most importantly, that we would remember, apply, and obey the words of God for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen? All right, we can talk back this morning. Today we're going to read and study and unpack the crescendo of the Christian faith, the symbol that for many Protestants means their faith, the cross. The cross of Christ, which was the device in which God allowed for his only begotten son to trade his life for ours. It's what we'll study today, and I hope you are prepared. I hope you're ready to talk about this moment which changes everything that we know about our own sin and about our own ability to make up for the bad that we were born into and the bad that we have done. The cross was the destination for Jesus. Not because he deserved it, but because we deserve it. And he loves God the Father so much that he obeys him even unto death. And that's what Jesus will do and has done for us so that we would have life, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Karen, our community groups director taught us about the injustice that was taking place in the conviction of Jesus for blasphemy. Even though he will prove once and for all through his resurrection that he actually is the God he claims to be. And Pilate, as we learned last week, was not convinced that Jesus did anything wrong, but buying into political pressure that would prefer that Jesus was crucified rather than just flogged, Pilate allowed his crucifixion to happen. And while everything I just said is true, I studied this passage with Spencer Chin, one of our communicators on our teaching teams, in a Pete's, and I had a black tea lemonade, and we noticed some themes and points that possibly get overlooked when we hear or read a passage that is so familiar to so many of us. We noticed some specific details that if you read just once seem to be as important as that I drank a black tea lemonade while discussing the passage with Spencer. We must be reminded that contextually, this story was not happening in a vacuum. It was happening in a very real place at a very real time with very real participants and onlookers being involved. And what happens in the passage today is written by John, the apostle of love, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who has written what we know as the gospel of John, which we've been studying for quite some time. This is a biography completely and solely about Jesus Christ. And as we have read many times, the purpose of this letter is so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ. And by knowing this, by believing this, you would have life in his name. John, the author of this letter, with the purpose of writing this, is so that you may believe in Jesus. And he writes it in a way that tips his hand not just to the purpose of what the letter is, 
but the emphasis of how it is possible to believe that Jesus is the Messiah in the first place. So John's purpose of the entire letter of John is found in John 20, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But the passage that we'll read today has two other emphasis that might not be what we tend to think of specifically when we read about the crucifixion of Jesus. So you're going to see that the way John writes it's a little different than how everybody else wrote it. So what do you think of when I say scripture being fulfilled? What comes to mind? Often we also call it prophecy being fulfilled, which tends to make us to think of predictions that came true, predictions of the future that eventually were fulfilled. But what we're going to study today is that scripture being fulfilled in a king means more to our faith in Jesus, his word, and his finished work than most of us realize. There is scripture being fulfilled early on in the book of Isaiah that we tend to talk about every December. Here's what it says, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And Charlie Brown, that is the meaning of Christmas. This was written 700 years prior to Jesus being born to the Mary Virgin. And yet throughout the Old Testament, the letters written prior to Jesus' birth were prophecy pointing out who and how the Savior would come, what he would do, and what he would accomplish, and the reality that he would come to die, and that he would not stay in the grave, that his body would not see decay. And all of this was written hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years, prior to Jesus actually fulfilling these things. Prophecy, if you don't know, accounts for a major portion of the entire canon, uh, all the scriptures put together. Numerous books in the Old Testament contain prophecy of telling of the future events, Some include short statements about the future. Others feature entire prophetic visions. In the New Testament, almost every book contains some type of prophecy, with Revelation being wholly devoted to the prophetic vision of John's. By one account, about 27% of the Bible is predictive. This means that when written, over one-fourth of the Bible, more than one in four verses, was prophetic. And uh, professor and theologian J. Barton Payne lists that 1,817 prophecies are found in the entire scriptures, in the entire Bible. The consistent relation of prophecy in the Bible is staggering. On top of that, its amazing accuracy of those detailed prophecies being fulfilled is staggering. At least one half of all biblical predictions have already been fulfilled precisely as God had declared. Because of God's faithfulness in fulfilling these prophecies, we can be assured that he will fulfill the rest of the prophecies in Scripture without fault. See Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not human that he would lie, not a human being that he would change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So today we'll read about the most important sacrifice in all of human history. But as we will see, John, the author of this letter, had an emphasis of two things— that we will spend our time seeing revealed as we read this. So look with me to what was written by the prophet Isaiah about 733 years prior to the crucifixion that we're going to study today. So turn with me to Isaiah 53. It'll be on the screen also. We're going to read parts of Isaiah 53. We're going to skip a few verses, but I want you to hear of this prophetic message, what I would call an eyewitness account to the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. 
Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Skip to verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So again, I would call this an eyewitness explanation of the crucifixion of Jesus, but it was written well before Jesus was born to Mary, and yet vividly describes what would take place and what it was accomplishing lifetimes before it actually happened. The Psalms speak to this future reality a thousand years prior to it taking place. In Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And then chapter 34, verse 20, He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. More on that a little bit later. So let's begin where Karen ended last week in John 19, verse 16, and we're going to unpack this portion of the gospel a little bit. Finally, Pilate handed him, being Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. As we studied last week, an unjust, guilty verdict had been given to someone who was completely innocent. So the world's in turmoil. Did you guys know that? Like, we don't want to invite you to church and pretend like nothing bad's happening outside of these walls. The world's messed up, but the Word of God said it was going to be, and the Word of God also said it was going to get worse. And the world is in turmoil. There is racism running rampant throughout our culture. There are people being beaten because of their ethnicity. People cancel people because they disagree. And depending on where you are, majority rules rather than logic, truth, or peace. Court systems often allow innocent people to rot in jail and guilty people to go free. I'll let that sit there for a second. The country especially is fractured over any and everything political. Public health is up for debate because some politicians said so. What is right in some people's eyes is wrong in other people's eyes. And as Christians, we know that there is no king, no politician, No public opinion that can or will satisfy. It is only the king of the kingdom of God who reigns and rules for a Christian. Just him. Yet society might even attempt to do away with that as well. What we're about to see is the largest injustice in all of human history. Where God with skin gets executed for being God with skin. Don't miss that irony. And he actually admitted it. 
yet was without sin or deceit in his mouth, as Isaiah pointed out 700 years prior to Jesus' physical life. And what Satan and mankind meant for evil, God will use for his glory. And I cannot tell you how satisfying that is as a follower of Jesus to know that ultimately the worst injustice in all of human history where my God seemed forsaken, who was flogged and beaten and crucified on a cross, brought life and peace to all of those who would believe and call on the name of the Lord and they shall be saved. This is the ultimate redemption story. This is the superior sacrifice. And without it, we are dead in our transgressions. But instead of our death being certain, Christ died for us so that we could be made right with God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for who? For us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 17 of John 19. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, is called Golgotha. In other gospel accounts, it was pointed out that after the flogging, Jesus was so beat up that he was unable to carry the cross completely on his own, and Simon of Cyrene was voluntold to come and carry it for him. Why doesn't John mention this? Because his emphasis is about us believing that Jesus is king and the details of a surrogate cross carrier was not as important to his narrative. Jesus, in many of the crowd's eyes, was a blasphemer and a crazy teacher with crazy ideas who had worked people up in a frenzy over his teachings. But ironically, that wasn't what Jesus' endgame was, nor his goal. It was to show the world their depravity, which even though they had a manual, God with us, with them, they would execute him on a cross because they, or us, mankind, would need a savior who knew that we wouldn't get everything right, but instead did what was right for us by sacrificing himself in our place. Yeah. Verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. All right, so you guys have read other gospel accounts, right? Like John is really quiet about these thieves, the Gospel of John doesn't say much about it. The two others who were crucified alongside Jesus. But personally, I think it's one of the most influential moments in my personal walk with Jesus when I first read in Luke what he says in Luke 23. He says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, being Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This story from Luke's account resonates so completely with me, not because it changes the narrative of Jesus dying, but it colors in the reality that even as he hung on the cross, was mocked and left for dead, he was still Savior. He was still Lord and in complete control. That is the God that we worship. Forgiving this thief who knew that his personal execution was just, yet he also knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And then some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture, you will be with me in paradise. Wow. I like to point out that this thief didn't have a baptism certificate. 
or an amazing attendance in the synagogue, a list of moral accomplishments, or probably born into the right family. He had a faith in the one true God who was being put to death next to him unjustly, and he knew that, and he spoke up. Our faith, church, is not a silent one. Even though God knows the heart, out of the mouth the heart speaks, and if we are unwilling to share, perhaps it's because we're unwilling to submit to Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice that prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was customary for a charge to be inscribed on a sign above the soon to be executed, and Pilate used the term King of the Jews, which was a little ironic while also being a symbol of what Jesus truly is. He is the King of the kingdom of God. He is the king and he reigns over his kingdom. And those who have been included, those who have been drawn, those who are God's people, those who by faith and humility have repented of their sin and turned to Jesus as their Lord and master do have a king. And that king is about to atone for the sins of many by dying on this cross. And as we will see in the next few verses, what most of us think about when we read the story of the crucifixion, we tend to focus on substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death on the cross. Substitutionary atonement. Has anyone used that phrase this week? It's a good one. I get used to remembering it. It's something that I hope all of us grasp, substitutionary atonement. I hope that we all recognize it. I hope that we all understand it. Every time I see someone pulled over for speeding, I think, better them than me, substitutionary atonement. Yeah, yeah, no. That's not actually what substitutionary atonement is. See, I'm guilty, but Jesus steps in for me. But what John seems to focus on in his gospel is an emphasis of two things. First, that Jesus is king. Not just a good teacher, not just a moral man, but king of the kingdom of God. Verse 20, many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews, and Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written, because I said so. That's my translation. Some commentators believe that Pilate used his wording to mock the Jewish leaders, to tell them that they were submissive to the king of the Jews that would soon be executed. See, Americans don't really understand kingship, and most of us are Americans. We have presidents, which under the original plan of the government was to be a public servant that the world that would serve the nation, help make decisions, and do what was best for the country. Yeah. A king, on the other hand, was the one that reigned and ruled. His word was law, and what he said went. Yet this king, Jesus, while not only saying the truth, but being the truth, personified, served this kingdom that he reigned over. Not like a president going to a homeless shelter, but by physically trading his life on the cross for those that he ruled and reigned over. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus... They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. This is pretty specific, don't you think? 
Why is John making known in his gospel what other gospels communicate as this? Mark 15, 24. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. John seems a lot more specific. And this can't be so insignificant in Mark's gospel just because Mark's gospel is known as the newspaper version of the gospels because it's much shorter. I contend that John is as specific as he is because Jesus being king and Jesus fulfilling scripture were his two main emphasis in his gospel account. Jesus fulfilling scripture was a big deal. But I think since we all live in post-resurrection times, we tend to not empathize with a first century Jew who had been taught what we call the Old Testament. See, it had all pointed to the fulfillment of a Messiah, one that would come, one that would fulfill, one that would reign and rule. We know that to be Jesus. They did not. Nor did they expect it to be a lowly carpenter's son to be the king of the kingdom of God. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus, while fighting to keep air in his lungs, looks to make sure that his mother, who is probably in her mid to late 40s by now, who is probably a widow and doesn't have any real income to speak of, is taken care of by who? The disciple whom Jesus loved, who authors the very letter that we've been studying and doesn't call himself by name because his identity is in, is in fact in the reality that Jesus loves him. Jesus is fulfilling Exodus 20, verse 12 in this moment. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land and the Lord your God has given you. Verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Again, very specific. Why? Let's look back in the Old Testament once again. Psalm 69, verse 21. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. The psalmist writes this a thousand years before, so these breadcrumbs would lead you to be sure that Jesus isn't accidentally fulfilling this scripture, but that he is exactly what was foreseen. Verse 30 of John 19. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Not only was another prophecy fulfilled with the vinegar that Jesus drank, but many supposed that it was to quelch his parched throat so that he could let out a victorious shout. It is finished! So what was finished? Well, Jesus' life, but also his earthly ministry. His finished work had been complete. He lived the life that none of us could live. He died the death that we all deserve to die as a ransom for the penalty of our sins. This work that he was sent to do was his mission and his obedience to the Father. Jesus came to die for the sins of mankind. Why did Jesus come? To die for us. That's why he came. And it was foretold by the prophets beforehand, not because they guessed, but because God gave them the vision to see what was to come. Paul speaks to this as he testifies to those in Greece. 
In Acts 17, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Preach it, Paul. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be the special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. This is an odd occurrence to be included. It's also graphic in the sense that to speed along the execution... They would break the legs of the people hanging on the cross so that they were unable to pull themselves up in order to take another breath. But yet again, the specifics were written so that we would see that the death of Jesus fulfilled what was said long ago about what would happen to the Messiah. Psalm 3420, which we quoted before, he protects all his bones and not one of them will be broken. Verse 34 of John. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Yet another description that Jesus, who is fully God, is also fully man, and he had physically died, which this test of the pierced side with both blood and water coming out proves. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John, once again, does not refer to himself by name, but puts his name to this by stating that he who gave his testimony had actually seen this take place, and that his testimony is true, and he testifies so that the reader may understand and believe as well. Verse 36. These happened. What we just read happened. This story happened. So that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, Psalm 34. And then in verse 37 points to, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. (laughs) I'll show you where that is in just a moment. Here's my main point about scripture being fulfilled. Fulfillment of scripture is not accidental or coincidental in Jesus. It's predetermined. So look at how John points to both the past and the future in his statements in verse 36 and 37. He points to Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me and the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son hundreds of years before this took place. See, fulfillment of Scripture not only justifies our belief in Jesus, but based on his past performance, we can trust in his future promises. From the prophets of old to the future, look with me at Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha And the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
This is the future promise, church. That Jesus' second coming will be grander than his first. He will come on the clouds, and those who pierced him, those who sinned against him, those who never acknowledged his lordship will see him, plus those of us who have repented and trust him will see him, and there will be mourning over our sin, and there will be mourning over our unrepentant hearts, and based on his past performance, we can trust in his future. Oh, all righty. Getting going. Because based on his past performance, we can trust in his future promises. See, Jesus lived. Jesus died. And as we will study in two weeks, he has risen. And because of this completed work, of his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead, our Christianity means something. Did you know when you woke up this morning that if you are included in Christ, you are considered holy church? And guess what? You probably know what you did last night. You ain't that holy. But because of what God has done for you, you are pronounced holy and set apart and made right because of what Jesus has accomplished, which was foretold thousands of years before. Because of this completed work, because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, life is offered to all of us who would believe and be changed by it and to be trusting in it because there is nothing we can do to work our way to God, yet God worked his way to us to offer us life in his sacrifice, in his cross, and in his empty tomb. Jordan, I'm going to invite you up. And I got time, so I'm going to end with a story. I was at a party a few weekends ago. You know who was there. Uh, well, Jesus, but anyway. And uh, I was at this party, and, and I, was, I was seeing some friends, and we're celebrating a birthday. And then a friend of mine, a friend that, eh, a guy I went to high school with. Let's go there. Uh, he was there. And I've seen him multiple times. We share some of the same friends, and... Uh, we were talking, and, uh, you know, he was, he, was, he was feeling good. That's all I'll say. And, uh, and we were talking, and he came to me, and he said, Tim, you've, you've got stuff figured out. We're the same age, even though he doesn't always like to share that. And uh, uh, he's like, you've got stuff figured out. You're, you're married. You have however many kids I have. I forget. Five. And, uh, you know, by God's grace, you've, you've purchased a house, blah, blah, blah. And he was saying all of these things that, to him meant that I've got life figured out. And I got to respond with, well, man, everything you just described is, uh, I've tried to ruin, but I've got a good God who has blessed me. And he goes, yeah, and you have that religion thing. And I was like, yeah, okay. And uh, we started to talk about that, and he started to ask me specific things about, you know, are we going to be raptured? I was like, we? <laughs> um, So I got to share the gospel with him. <laughs> and I got to point out that the reality is because he wasn't balking at anything I was saying about the gospel. But his thing was he, he first thought he had to clean himself up to come to God. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't have to clean yourself up. Like Chris probably still listens to Megadeth. You don't have to clean yourself up. Megadeth? 
No? Just Brian and Chris and Mike and I? Okay, that's fine. All right. When you come to Christ, you don't clean yourself up, but you have to understand and be willing to realize that God might change you. Man, he was deer in headlights in that moment. Your priorities might change. The way you want to live might change. The things you consider most important might change. That's the reality of denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following Jesus. And so we're going to talk about it over golf next time. (laughs) That'll be fun. And I want to be able to share with him more about what difference it makes to follow Jesus. But I want all of you that are here on a Sunday morning to understand and realize that following Jesus ain't easy. He's going to ask you to give up things that you don't want to give up. He's going to ask you to do things you're not going to want to do. And in a society and in a world where we're not really down for authority, it's going to be really difficult for some of us when all of society is telling us, man, we're army of one. We can do things ourselves. We don't need... Listen, you need Jesus. Because you cannot do what Jesus has done with your mouth closed the way that Jesus did it. And he died in our place. And he hung on that cross. And as a pastor who I once worked for pointed out, No one took Jesus' life. Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we're going to have the opportunity to respond in worship. And then after one song, we're going to then remember Christ in communion. But I ask you, during these words that are sung, if you know the words, if you feel comfortable, sing your heart out. If you don't know the words, you don't feel comfortable singing, would you listen to these words and be reminded of the reality that following Jesus means that we die to ourselves. We pick up our cross, and we follow him no matter what. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, and thank you that it's true. God, as we respond in musical worship, I pray that it would be honoring to you, that we wouldn't think that the sound of our voice or the ability we have to get out of bed is uh, the offering, but that a heart that is distraught over our sin a heart that is dependent upon a perfect God, a heart that has been changed because of Jesus is the offering that we bring back to you. So God, thank you for this time. Would you use this time for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.